Good morning. Uh, as we begin this morning, we're going to uh, step back into our series. And uh, as we're talking about uh, some different things, we're in Exodus this morning as, as we move forward. And, and uh, I believe the, in, in your bulletin, it says how to approach a holy God is the, the idea. And, and really uh, what's behind that and what we're thinking and, the, and where we're headed is, is really what true and false worship look like. We're going to see this great uh, uh, comparison of the two in the, in the couple of passages we're going to look at this morning. And it's, this week I kept thinking about that idea of true and false worship and what that looks like. I, I kept going back in my mind to an interview I saw a couple of years ago uh, with a rock star, actually uh, with Bono, who is the lead singer of the rock band U2. If you don't know who that is, that's okay. Uh, he's probably, possibly the biggest rock star in the world for the last 25 years. And uh, he happens to be a Christian. And I saw him in this interview before he was going to play in a stadium to 100,000 people. And the reporter was asking him questions. And he was talking about music and different things. And what he said was, he said, I I believe all music is worship. And he said that. And the guy kind of looked at him. And actually, as I was listening to the interview, I thought, okay, I'm I'm not sure I'm with you all the way here. And, and, And what he said was, is he said, all music is worship. He said, a lot of it is worship to God. He said, but a lot of it is worship to all sorts of different things. He said maybe the idea of love or love itself or um, relationships or sex or money or whatever it may be. We worship all sorts of different things in music. And so as he started to explain what he meant by that, I started to go, yeah, maybe onto something. That is true. When we start to think about it, when we start to think about the things that we make much of, when we start to think about worship, what the definition is and what it actually means, if you look it up, what worship actually means is, is it says an adoring reverence or regard or to show profound devotion and respect. And as I started to think about it in those terms, I thought he might be onto something. There's lots and lots of things that we show a real devotion to that we get very excited about. Things other than God that we end up in a lot of ways very practically worshiping. We make so much of that. When you think about that, a, a profound devotion in respect, a, a way we could look at it is just how much time we spend thinking about it, dwelling on it, uh, putting our resources to it. And so when we start to think about that, there's a lot of things in our culture that we worship, especially in our culture in North America today. And the list would be really long if we really started to think about it. But just a few things as you think about that idea that we give great devotion and respect to or we show profound uh, reverence and we make a big deal about And what came to my mind, sadly, as I thought about that in our culture is sports. That sometimes when we start to apply that definition and we really look at it, there's things that we spend so much time and energy and we make such a big deal about. Sports came to mind. Politics came to mind. Money. As sad as it is, shopping came to mind. Our consumer mentality, the things that we spend so much time And so much, uh, we make such a big deal about. In our culture, I would say celebrity comes into that. Oftentimes we worship celebrities, whether we knowingly or not, but we make so much of different things. And so today as we come to our passage, and and the way we're going to do this this morning is we're actually going to look at a couple different passages. But as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to see this clear uh, contrast of false worship and true worship and what the two look like. And uh, as, as we do that, uh, we're in Exodus today. And just so uh, I'll point you to it in your bulletin, we actually have the, the text for the scripture printed in there. Um, I point you to that just simply because what we're going to do today is we're actually going to look at a couple different passages. And uh, a couple are in Exodus and a couple are in Leviticus. 
And I, I put those, have those together for you. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us. But if you do, just so you don't have to be flipping back and forth the whole time, they're all right there together. And so as we step back into this in our series, let me just catch you up. Uh, my, my wife lovingly reminded me last week. She said, your, your, your recap of, of how we've gotten to there, it's getting kind of long. That's what she said to me last week. And I said, okay, okay well, point taken. You're right. It, it is getting a little long. So we can't recap that every single week. But I'm just going to say it real as, as succinctly as I can that, that as, we're, as we're moving through Scripture and we're getting this idea and this picture that, that God uh, puts man on earth and he puts us here as the crown of his creation to reflect him and we turn our backs on him. But then he immediately enacts a plan to come after us, to redeem us, to bring his creation back. And that's what we've been following the way God is doing that, and we see that promise to Adam and Eve, and then to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and now here we are in Exodus, and we're down to Moses now. And we see God moving, and what he's doing is he says, I'm going to bring you back, and the way my plan is going to work is it's going to come through a Savior that's going to come through your seed, Eve. And then he says the same thing to Abraham, and then we start to see this growing that God's going to use a people to show the world what, who he is and what he's like, and that's where we are. That's where we are in Exodus. And last week, if you were with us, when we were in Exodus, we saw that God has saved his people from Egypt. He takes them out. He pulls them out. And then after saving them, he gives them his moral law, the Ten Commandments. And that's what we looked at last week. And just so we're clear, I'm going to say it again. I said it a bunch last week. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments he gives is not the way we earn our favor with God. It's something that God gives us in a way that we can now trust him because he's already saved them. He pulls them out. He saves them first. And then he gives them the law and how they can trust them. And so that's where we sit. That's where we ended last week. In Exodus 20, God's given them. He's, he's rescued them. He's pulled them out. And then he says, this is what it looks like to follow me. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. If you know this story at all, it, it, you know, this, this blissful, okay, God's giving them. He's making him his people. Lasts a couple chapters. Doesn't, doesn't last real long. And what happens is God says, I want you to be my people and you do what I say and you trust me. And they say in Exodus 24, and actually in Exodus 24, 3, it says all the war, the people say all the words of the Lord, the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they say, OK, God, we are with you. We're going to trust you and we're going to keep your laws and we're going to keep your commandments and we're, we're with you and we're going to do it. And then right after that, Moses goes back up on the mountain to meet with God to get some more directions, to get a clearer picture of what it looks like to have true worship. And as he goes off and he's there, he's gone for 40 days, and in those 40 days, everything falls apart. And that's where we're going to be. That's where we're going to start this morning in Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to look at those first six verses. So if you want to read along with me, we're going to look at Exodus 32, 1 to 6. And so as Moses is up on the mountain, literally meeting with God, as he's instructing him on what true worship looks like, how they're going to be his people, this is what happens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us the gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what we see here is what we're going to see this picture that I was talking about this morning. Right? We see right here at the beginning the false worship. What happens when false worship? And we're going to look at the problems that come out of that and why we do that and why that happens. And then we're going to look at how God starts to pull them out of this to a true worship and what it looks like. But before we do that, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin to look at this together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we just confess this morning that we need you, that we need your spirit here moving and active to open our eyes to see the truth of your word and to, uh, to apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would move freely in this place to do so that uh, you would illuminate all this. That we, uh, we just confess that without you doing so, that uh, it's a waste of time, that we can't do this on our own, that we need you here moving in this place to do so. We pray that you would come and just do that, that we would see clearly what you would have for us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the way we're doing this. False worship first and then the true worship. Looking at the two together, but we're going to start with the false worship. And hopefully as we read that passage in Exodus 32, the false worship jumps off the page at you. Hopefully it shouldn't be that hard to figure out why this is false worship. If you were here with us last week as we went through the Ten Commandments, or even if you weren't, if you know the Ten Commandments at all, if you've ever read them, if you've ever heard them, you see what they're doing in this false worship, and it's really the heart and the root of all false worship takes place right in the first two commandments. Right? God says at the very beginning, you'll have no other gods before me. And when we open up and we read in Exodus 32 here just a month or so after God's spoken and they've heard them, that's what they're doing. They decide we need to fashion for ourselves a God that we can see and we can touch and we can come to. And that's what they do. And not only do they break the first one, they break the second commandment, which is you shall have no idols. You'll make no, no image of God. And you're to do neither one of those. And immediately they're breaking it. And we see the very heart of this false worship. And it's almost just dumbfounding when you think about what all they had seen, all that they had seen God do in just the few days, the, the months before this, that they'd seen God miraculously rescue them from Egypt. The plagues that they saw, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, them gathering around the mountain and hearing God's voice audibly from the mountain, giving them the Ten Commandments. But yet here it is, they've decided to make a golden calf, a gold. I mean, it's one of those things you say, yeah, they were worshiping a golden cow. That's what they were doing. And they were gathering around and it seems so insane and it seems crazy. Now, part of that, when we talk about the actual idol and what it looks like, part of that's culturally conditioned. It seems crazy to us because we don't have golden cows around that we're worshiping. But when you put it in context where they came from, from Egypt, where they worship everything, the Nile, the sun, cows, whatever, everything, it, it, you see where they got that from, but it still seems crazy given all they've seen and what God has, has told them that they're to do. But I don't want to spend a bunch of time on actual the idol, the actual golden cow or talking about fashioning physical idols, but more the idea of idolatry and where that comes from and why we do that. Why, why in the world did these people who've just seen God work in all these ways turn to worshiping idols? And I want us to think about that just big idea for a second. Maybe you don't remember. Uh, I'm not sure if I really even hit on it very much when we first talked about it. But when Moses originally went before Pharaoh, the people are in uh, the beginning of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 5, the people are in slavery. 
And God tells Moses, you're to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. If you don't, if you remember what God says and instructs him to say as he goes before him and it says, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a fast to me. I'm sorry, a feast to me in the wilderness. And so what God said, his original plan, when he told them, he said, you go and you tell Pharaoh to let you go. It says you tell him to let you go because you're going to go have a feast in the wilderness. And then a little later, they said, we're going to go and we're going to have offerings and we're going to do all these things. So what are they talking about? What what they're talking about, the original plan is God says, go and let my people go so they can go worship him. They can go out and worship him. We see Jesus say something very similar uh, 1,500 years later in John uh, chapter 4. As he meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he tells her about how the time is coming where it's not going to matter where you worship or what it looks like, he says, but God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. And it says the father is seeking true worshipers. And so as we start to think about why in the world will we ever worship wrong things or what's going on here? The picture I want you to see is God's mission his, his coming after us, his coming to redeem things is going to end in worship. It was always about worship. And what I mean by that is you were made for worship. Because when God comes and he sets our relationship right, which is the whole story that we're looking at in Scripture, the way we're moving through, that's what he's moving towards, to redeem us, to bring us back, to be in right relationship with him. When we are in right relationship with God, when we see him for who he is, come to him the way he has said, it will end in worship. And it will end in worship because you will see him and that's all you'll be able to do. That's been the plan all along. But why in the world, if that's the case, would these people go off and make a a golden calf or make some other idol? And the answer is this. We were made to worship. We were made to worship God. We were made to worship him and him alone. But when sin enters the world, and we say this, I say this every week. Hopefully we're getting this. You can hopefully repeat this back to me. We say sin is ignoring God and the world that he created. When man decides to ignore God and the world he created, we still have a deep need for worship, and then we turn to worship other things. That's why Romans 1 says, uh, professing to be wise, they became fools, and they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. See, what happens is when sin enters, it distorts our thinking, It distorts the way we look at things. It distorts the way reality is. But we still have this need to worship, so we look to fill it up with other things. Uh, There's a real famous uh, saying kind of from Blaise Pascal, if you know who he is. He was a 1600s French philosopher and mathematician, but he used to say this. He said that we have a God-shaped hole in our being. And what he was saying is there's this thing inside of us that only God can fill up. And because of our sinfulness, what happens is we try to fill it up with other things. We try to fill it up with golden cows. We look for other things to worship. And so when we start to think about this, I want you to think of that in bigger terms. If we keep going back to the golden calf and you go, oh, wait a second, I've never worshipped a golden cow. I'm not really interested in that. Uh, But the reality is we do in other ways. We look for visible things to help fill us up. Now, I don't know of anybody here that actually turns to a visible golden calf, but we turn to other things. When we have uh, hard times, when we're frustrated, uh, when we're down, depressed, whatever it is, we turn to all kinds of other things to fill ourselves up. Uh, like I said at the beginning, sometimes it's shopping, something that's so, as silly as uh, food. 
or, or entertainment or things that we turn to to try to fill ourselves up. Things aren't going well, so I look for other things to come uh, in, in and make this the thing that I, that I focus on. In, in our culture, it's very uh, common that uh, we focus on our children or our family. And see, the hard thing when we start to talk about idolatry and filling things up other than God, what often happens is we take good things like our relationship with our kids or our spouse or our family or whatever, and we make them ultimate things. See, there's nothing wrong with loving your children and caring greatly about them and making much of your kids. But the problem is when they rise to that spot that only God should have, and then it starts to fall apart. Then it has become an idol. We've put too much emphasis on that, and it starts to come apart. But see, so... So what happens is when we talk about false worship and we start to try to fill up with things that can't take that place, as Pascal says, it's a God-shaped hole that only he can fit, that only he can fill up. And when we start to put other things in that place, we will ultimately be disappointed. Those things will not be able to stand up under the weight because that is meant only for God and his worship. And so what happens is it's, it's, it leads to just all kinds of other problems. You know, when we talk about in our culture, uh, probably what the greatest idol in our culture is, is uh, in the culture we live in today, we live in a very, very individualistic society. It's all me. I'm the center of everything. And so what happens is the greatest idol in our culture becomes ourselves. Uh, you've probably heard this said. It's, uh, it's very... Um, common today, but you just what it ends up being is a very relativistic view of truth. I decide for me what's good for me and you decide what's good for you. And, and that's how we'll, we'll operate. And what's behind that is that I'm the ultimate decider of what's true and what's not. All right. So when I do that, what happens is the God or the religion or whatever it is I decide to follow ends up looking a lot like me. If I'm the ultimate decider, the God that we end up with is uh, uh, Tim Keller. He always makes this argument, and I love the way he says it. He says we end up with a Stepford God. And if you know the story of Stepford Wives, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about in Stepford Wives, there's that story of the men in the town. of, of uh, uh, They come together and they decide uh, they're going to take their wives and make them into robots that only say yes. They only affirm everything they say, and they go, oh, this will be great, and it'll be wonderful, and they'll never ever have a conflict and they'll just say yes to everything he says. But what happens is they end up with Stepford wives. The Stepford wives are that, that they can't ever cross their will. And so they end up with not a relationship. They just end up with something that just affirms that it looks just like them. Right. They end up the God. And it's the same thing when we do that with religion. When we do that with idols, when we fill up with other things, we make it all about what I think. What we end up with is not a relationship we don't end up with a true God. We end up with us. Instead of a golden cow, we end up with a golden me. It ends up being just like me at all times. And my, my will is never crossed. I don't have a real relationship. What I have is just something that affirms everything. I say everything I don't like. If I read through the Bible and I come to it this way, anything I don't like, I just throw it out. Uh, that might make me have to do something I don't want to do. So I'll just ignore that. Right. And it ends up being it's all about me and I become the idol. And so what happens is when we do that, you come to a point, if you're really honest with yourself, you come to a point where you, ha you realize you have no God. You have a step for God that looks just like you that can't cross your will, so you have no relationship. And so when things get bad or they get hard, everything falls apart because it's just you. And so you come to 
uh, a decision that's got to be made. Right? You can either keep going down that road, which is the same thing they're doing with the golden calf, by the way. Right? We make an idol that we can come to on our own terms the way we want, when we want, how we want. And we can either keep going down that road or you can begin to open yourself up to the God of the Bible. And what happens when you do that? Instead of coming on your own terms and it's all you, now you're coming on God's terms. And I'll be honest with you, it's very scary when that happens. Because the God of the Bible doesn't come to you on your terms, it's his terms and his alone. And so what happens is your will will get crossed. There will be things that hurt and that are hard. Because God is is absolute and he is perfection. And so when that happens, you have to bend to his will. But the, the, the thing that we need to see as we move from a false worship to a true worship is that has to be the case. We have to come to him the way he is. To have true worship, to have true and real worship, we have to have right affections for God. And to have right affections for God, we have to have a right knowledge of who God is and who we are. Otherwise, it's us ultimately deciding and it all falls apart and it's a mess. So as we move to this idea of true worship, I want you to look with me at Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 and 11. And this is after they've they've rebelled. But God, Moses begs and pleads and God says, "Okay, I will remake my covenant with them. And he says, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as had not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are, you are shall see the works of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. And then he goes on to give them all these things and to show them all the stuff. And if you keep reading through that passage and you look, God starts to give them all this, this, uh, some, uh, we see it here in Exodus and we see it in Leviticus and he starts to show them all these things and all these commands and all these rules and he starts to teach them who he is and who we are as people. He begins to correct the false worship that just says, I come how I want and he says, no, 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 you come to me the way I say and you see me for who I am and that's the way you have to come to me. And so he starts to show them and he's showing them how holy he is. We say holy often in the church. Holy means other God is other than we are. He is not us. He is not like us. He is something wholly other. He's different. And he begins to show them. And as I said before, to have true worship, you have to have a right knowledge of who God is. So he starts to show them. And he gives them these markers and these rules and these boundaries. And he starts to set them up. And he's saying to them, I am so different than all the other gods and all the other people and all this stuff, all these false gods. And I'm showing you what it looks like. And so he begins to correct He begins to show us who he is and how holy he is and how wonderful and perfect he is. And he begins to show us by all these rules and all these things and all these boundaries that he starts to put in place. He shows how far we are from him. When you start to see all these things that he says, it drives home where we are in relation to him. And so what we begin to see here, and we see this in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the book that you usually skip. When you're reading through the Bible, you read a couple chapters and you go, what in the world is going on here? And then I'll just go ahead and jump ahead. Or maybe we skim through it real quick because Leviticus has all these rules and all these things and all this stuff. And you go, what in the world is going on? And what God is doing is he's showing, he's beginning to show them how different he is 
and what it looks like to be called out of the world and to be a different people, to be set apart for him. And he's showing them and he begins to do that. And we see that in Leviticus 10. In a lot of ways, not completely, but in a lot of ways, you can sum up what's happening in Leviticus and Leviticus 10 verses 10 and 11. And it says this, you are to distinguish between holy and common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes of the Lord, statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And what we get in Leviticus is God is showing who he is. It's not how we're to achieve holiness. He's showing you by putting all this stuff out there how other he is, how holy he is and what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to live out a distinctiveness that he's already given them by saving them, by making them his people. And so that's what he's doing. And so he shows them all these rules and all these things and all this stuff, but he doesn't stop there. He could just give them all these rules and say, this is what it looks like to be set apart. Now, good luck. But he doesn't do that. God says, no, I'm going to set all this apart and I'm going to do all this and then I'm going to come and I'm going to live right among you. And so he not only does that, he gives them also the plans for a temple, a tent. It's called the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle where God would come down and dwell right in their midst. And so he gives all these rules and all these things, but then he also shows them how they're to come to him in this tent and in this temple. And he begins to show them all this stuff. How can I, how can this holy, perfect God live amongst this messed up people? How can we have true worship, even though we're sinful and we turn from them and we worship golden cows and we make idols of ourselves and we do all these things. And God says, well, I've made a way. I'm going to show you how you can approach me, even though you're so far from me. And so he gives them this uh, picture of this tent, this tabernacle where he can dwell among them. And he starts to give rules on how they're to use it. And there's all these sacrifices they're to do throughout the year. They're just sacrificing constantly and they're doing all these things. And that's one of those things when you open up Leviticus or you read from Exodus 25 to 40 where God's giving all this picture. When we read it in our modern minds and we go, what in the world is going on? All this stuff and blood and animals and sacrifices and on and on and on. What God's doing is he's showing them the animal sacrifices that they would make. They would bring an animal and they would come and they'd put their hands on the animal and they'd place them on the animal. And they would make the confession that because of their sin, because of the way they've ignored God and the world that he's created, they deserve to die. That if God were truly just, he would just take their life. But they say, this animal is taking my place. So they would lay their hands and they would say, the animal's taking my place. And then they'd kill the animal to show that a life needs to be taken to make atonement for their sin. And they would do that year after year after year. And then they'd have this big day at the end of the year, uh, once a year, the day of atonement. And that's what's printed in your bulletin when we look at Leviticus 16. It says, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sin. And then he says, he talks about the priest who is anointed will go in your place and make atonement wearing holy linen garments. And he shall make atonement for the sanctuary and for the tent of meeting and for the altar and the assembly and on and on. And then in verse 34, he says, and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of all their sins. And so God sets up this tent of meeting and he showed us he's beginning to show us what true worship looks like. I am so other and holy and I'm giving you all these things to to uh, mark that out for you. But I'm gracious and I'm good and I'm loving and I want to be right there with you. But there's there's this problem. How does 
holy otherness that is God, that's perfection, come together with sinful, messed up man. And he says, I've made a way through sacrifices. By coming to me the way I've said and and, uh, just uh, confessing that I deserve my life, but you're graciously allowing this animal to take my place. And they do all these sacrifices and they do this over and over. And what God's doing is he's showing true worship. That God's justice and his uh, holy wrath against sin can still coincide with sinful, messed up people by offering a way in which we can come together. And so what God does as we're, as we're reading through the Bible, as you get into Exodus and Leviticus and then we move forward, he's taken these people and he showed them what worship looks like. And then he's going to take them into a land and he's going to set them up where later on they're going to set up a temple and they're going to be right there in the middle of the known world and they're going to be worshiping God, teaching people what God is like, that he's holy and perfect, but that we can come to him in the way that he's provided. And that would happen year after year after year and they're teaching. God's teaching Israel, but he's teaching the nations around that are watching what true worship looks like. And so as we read through this and we read through Exodus and we read through Leviticus and you can say, okay, well, that's... That's great. That's how they how they did it back in the day. They came and sacrifices and all this stuff. Well, what about us? Right? We're, we're still doing the same things. We're still making idols. We're still turning from God. How about us? What does this teach us about true worship? And there's a wonderful uh, picture here. That something so much bigger and greater than just sacrifices in this tent and the and the blood of animals and all these things that God was doing and he was teaching, that he was showing that what true worship is like. And he's showing us as well for all these years over and over. And he was showing and he's teaching us. So when we read it, Hebrews tells us what he was doing. Hebrews 8.5 says this, that the tabernacle and all these things serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And what Hebrews is telling us is God set up all the system and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the blood and the high priest and all these things, all of it to point to what happens in the heavenlies, what happens between God the Father and God the Son. See, what Hebrews tells us as you read through and you start to see this beautiful picture that emerges is that the temple, the temple that God has them set up is Jesus. And not only is the temple Jesus, but the high priest is Jesus. And not only is the high priest Jesus, but the sacrifice is Jesus. And the blood that is spilt is not just the blood of animals, it's the blood of Jesus. See, Hebrews tells us that every single part of this picture is pointing ahead to what will ultimately come to do away with sacrifices. See, the high priest that would go in each year, the temple, or however you look at it, start with the temple. The whole picture is the way that God could dwell among the people. Right? John 1 says, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us as Jesus came down and stepped into our story. It's not just a temple. It's not just this weird thing. It was this beautiful picture pointing to what Jesus would come and do when he became the temple. When he stepped down and entered the story. But not just that. It tells us that he's the high priest. Right? The high priest would enter into the temple and make a, a sacrifice on the people's behalf. And he'd go into the holy place and in the most holy place and he'd spread blood and we'd do all this. Well, Jesus doesn't just go into a tent in one little place. He walks into the heavenlies and he makes a sacrifice and he stands for you in the heavenlies. That's why Hebrews says it's just a picture of a copy of what's going on in the heavenlies. That true worship is that God has provided a way that you can be reconciled. And it's Jesus 
So it's not just the temple, it's not just the high priest, but it's the sacrifice. Right? Hebrews says that not by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he offered himself. And that's the most wonderful part when you start to see that it was his sacrifice because you get to the end and here's the picture that that emerges. Instead of doing it year after year after year when Jesus did it, it was done. And it was over and it was finished and we don't have to do it over and over. Soon we see the temple. We see the sacrifices. We see the blood. We see the immensity of what Jesus had to come and do. It's a beautiful picture of who he is and what he did for us, and what he accomplished. We no longer need goats and animals and sacrifices. We have Jesus. He was all those things. And now he says, I stand here to give you the work of all of it. And he restores us to true worship. Because what he says is, now you come through me, and you have complete and total access to God through what I've done for you, and now you can truly worship. You don't need idols. You don't need anything else. You need Him and Him alone, and that's it. And that's the picture that emerges. It's the beautiful picture that shows false worship, and it pulls us out and shows us what true worship is by what Jesus did for us. So I hope you see this morning as we as we move our way through that it's not just some weird old stories about animals and sacrifices and blood and all these things, but it's this beautiful, wonderful picture of what God has been doing since the very beginning, and it all points to Christ and what he's done for us, and that we have been granted true worship and true access through what he did for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the picture of the tabernacle. Thank you for the picture of the law in Leviticus the markers that set you apart, that show how holy and other you are. But most of all, we thank you that you've provided a way that we can be reconciled to you. In spite of ourselves, that you've come to us and you took our place and you offer free to us this beautiful, wonderful relationship in which we can come directly to you and worship. Uh, We pray this morning that we would never take that for granted, that we would see it afresh every single day and we would seek to go out and share the beauty of what you've done with others. We thank you for all you do for us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.